Welcome to Book Me, sponsored by Nimbus Publishing and Arts Nova Scotia. Today, Costas Halabrezos interviews author Nicola Davison. style of house has earned some architects in the Atlantic provinces international acclaim. These houses tend towards the austere, often nestling on boulders, between a silent forest behind them and the moody ocean in front. Yes, they typically face the ocean. And since glass walls are a common feature of these houses, the ocean, whether calm or violent, is a constant presence for the people inside. Nicola Davison's first novel, In the Wake, has earned the 2019 Margaret and John Savage First Book Award for fiction. It introduces us to Emily and Daniel, so-called come-back-from-a-ways returning from the West to Nova Scotia with their three-year-old son, to what should be their contemporary dream home. But the ocean, which attracted them to the brink of the land, brings their relationship to the brink as well. Nicola Davison, welcome to Book Me. Thank you. I'm delighted to be here. I've seen photos of these houses. I've always admired the design, uh, but I've always wondered what it's like to live in such an exposed way. I mean, literally, people living in glass houses. Why did you choose this kind of house instead of a quaint salt box or some Victorian Gothic number? We have lots of those, too. Yes. Well, this house came to me first. This is the beginning of the story, was I imagined a house just like it sitting on a place kind of near Lawrencetown Beach. So I think a lot of people would fantasize about living in a place like that. And uh, before I'd begun to write the novel, I was living across the street from a house like that in uh, Calgary. And I watched it built. And I watched the people move in. And they didn't have curtains for a long time. And it always struck me as being kind of like this cross-section of a dollhouse. Um, so you could see people moving around and living their lives in there. And it is as if they're on display all the time. And they had to be conscious of that. They must have been, yes. Now, what about the, the other perception of the, the ocean, which is there and, mm -hmm. and such a presence? Yes. Uh, I mean, when, when you move to a new community, neighbors may or may not fill you in on, on the local lore. But in your novel, it seems that many of the answers to Emily and Daniel's questions are really kept by the ocean itself. Yes. For Emily, um, her happiest memories have come from the ocean, but they're also the things that cause her the most anguish. And the fact that the house faces the ocean, she's constantly confronted with her past. When because she's she used looking. to go sailing with her da. Yeah. She used to spend a lot of time in a boat with her da. So she's an accomplished sailor and loves the ocean, but she has this very complicated way of thinking about it. There are presences in the wake, uh, people who've died, like her father, uh, but they remain present in memory. And there are also people who might be figments of the imagination or not. Could you introduce us to Rocket Man? I could. If I could read a little excerpt from the novel, I will. Yes, you may. <laughs> Emily pauses in the shower with one leg up, razor in hand, a hunting dog on point. She feels something, a change in the air, or maybe she heard it. 
Relaxing in the shower is not possible with a small child in the house. Even with the help of cartoons, she's always listening for telling noises or dubious silences. The running water deadens the sound from the next room. She cocks her head in the direction of the door and hears a commercial on TV, along with the small sound of Ryan's voice. She lets out a breath and then catches a deeper voice speaking. It's probably the TV. She puts down the razor and strains to make out the sounds. Too many horror movies as a teenager. It's easy to imagine terrible things happening while naked, wet, and blinded with soap. But no, it's just the TV. But something feels wrong. Call it paranoia, or call it mother's intuition. She rinses the soap from her half-shaved leg and switches off the water. Ryan? She calls out. She dries her face, then holds her breath, listening. There it is again. The deeper voice. A fresh fear blooms in her. The front door is locked. She must have locked it after letting the dog back in. The dog, Hoover would bark at a stranger. Surely he was good for that. That is, once he woke from his drooling sleep. Grabbing her robe, she pulls it around her damp body and is about to open the door when she hears him. Hi, Mommy, he mumbles around a lollipop, leaning through the door to see her. The sound of the television comes with him. Hi, sweetie. What have you got in your mouth? She peers around the edge of the door at him, sliding into her slippers, knotting her robe. Her shoulders relax. He was just sneaking a treat. Lollipop. The rocket man gave it to me. Emily stares at the stick protruding from his mouth, his smiling eyes. You're not supposed to have candy in the morning, Ryan. Too much sugar, it's bad for your teeth. She picks up her towel and finishes drying off. But the rocket man thought it was okay, he reasons, crunching the candy. I brush my teeth. Rocket man? Do you mean on the TV? She really must stop using the TV as a babysitter. No, the man gave it to me. He's, he says he likes the stars and the moon. An old soul, that's what people say. He lives inside his head like a lot of three-year-olds. Makes up imaginary friends. She keeps this in mind, watching him reaching for his toothbrush. A man gave it to you? She can't remember having any lollipops in the house. Yep, but he left, he says, popping the toothbrush into his mouth. She pulls her robe more tightly around her, peers around the door into the living room, sees the dog deep in sleep, and then she catches the change of light playing across his nose as the door moves with the breeze. I get a distinct feeling of the Hitchcock movie here. Oh, good. And not just because of the shower. (laughs) (laughs) Emily and, and Daniel's nearest neighbor, Linda, is older, and she's grieving her late husband. She also has a 20-something son named Tom, about whom she's very circumspect. Why isn't she forthcoming about Tom? Mm. She wants to get to know the neighbors a little bit better before she fills them in on his mental illness. And it's from previous experience, having told people that they thought were friends or people that were close to them as neighbors, and... uh, finding that it made people frightened. So she's concerned about the stigma of mental illness and wants to be able to explain it better to them. 
I remember Hollywood movies, to get back to movies again, from the 1950s and 60s that tended to depict people with schizophrenia as violent threats uh, who needed to be subdued in some way. What was your challenge in creating Tom to, to avoid that old stereotype? Yes. Well, I did a lot of research on schizophrenia, and I really wanted to get into the head of somebody who suffers from hallucinations. Um, I spent a lot of time watching recreations of what it is like to have a hallucination, and I realized how frightening it must be for that person and how confusing. So I really wanted to have a sympathetic view from for Tom. Um, and I wanted to avoid the idea that every person who has schizophrenia is out to hurt people because really it, they're more of a threat to themselves. And I thought the parallel with Tom and having a three-year-old child who has imaginary friends was kind of an interesting one. You're not sure with both of them if what they're saying is real or not, and neither are they. And so it really uh, creates this unreliable narrator, even though it's not being narrated from their point of view. Now, In the Wake contains several varieties of missing men mm. as well. Uh, Emily's father, whom we mentioned, she calls Da. Uh, Linda's husband, who is Tom's father. And even to an extent, Daniel, uh, when he has to start commuting out west a week at a time, uh, leaving behind Emily and their son, Ryan. How much do these absences fuel the story? Well, I think in Emily's case, her father's death when she's a young girl elevates him to a mythic proportion. So he becomes the perfect father in her mind, and it destroys her relationship with her mother. Uh, for Tom, the absent father is very complicated because he continues to hallucinate his father speaking to him. He is inextricable with the sea. So Tom hears his father speaking to him from the sea. And Daniel's absence, that's kind of the problem that we still have. And we have these semi-traditional relationships still with families where the women tend to stay at home and the father tends to go to work. Although that is changing, um, it is still set up so that men make more money than women. So in Daniel and Emily's case, it just makes economic sense for him to go to work. So when they discover that they're running low on money, he just follows the money. But there's also a kind of absence even when he's around sometimes. Mm. He, he quickly defaults to letting Emily take care of their son, Ryan. Yes, yes. And that, too, is complicated because he has a, a, a bit of distrust with Emily because she's had postpartum depression. He has gotten help from his own mother. So Emily has had the mother-in-law insert herself into the relationship since Ryan was a small child, was a baby. And uh, I think that creates a lot of tension between the two of them. So even if they were having a, a fairly good time of it in their marriage, to have that third point of view in there that's from a different generation, having the mother-in-law helping out and always saying, can you trust that she's treating him well enough? Is she getting enough sleep? Is she going to be depressed again? That, um, that causes more tension with them. 
you're a professional photographer, so I wasn't surprised to uh, read good visual descriptions, but you're also attuned to the distinctive sounds and scents of the Atlantic provinces, uh, what you call, for instance, the music of a boatyard, uh, or in the wake of a hurricane that snaps so many trees, the aroma of sap in the mm. air, which I remember from Hurricane mm. One. <laughs> Say, what is that? Oh, right, it's the sap from all those broken trees. Were, were those the kind of sensory details that became more acute when you returned to Nova Scotia? Mm, yes, the humidity of Nova Scotia carries a lot of smells with it that you don't really experience when you're in, you know, in Alberta because you're at a higher altitude. So everything being drier, you just you don't see as many bugs. You don't have earwigs. Um, <laughs> so when you come to Nova Scotia, you notice these these smells. You can smell the harbor right away. You've got that seaweed and the cry of the gulls. So when I was writing in the wake, we had just been back for a couple of years, and all of those things were very fresh to me. But I also talked to a lot of people about Hurricane Juan, and a lot of them told me about this smell that they had you know, in the air, you'd go outside and it smelled tropical and you could smell the sap and you could hear the, you know, trees being cut down and, yeah. You touch on a lot of intergenerational things here. We've already talked about Linda, who was holding back information to these new neighbors about her son, Tom. She wanted to make sure they, they might appreciate it. But we also encounter... Emily's mother, who finally, when she's going through a difficult period, feels free to start divulging things about her relationship with Emily's father. How important was that to, to you to introduce these kind of intergenerational perspectives when people were finally felt comfortable enough to talk about things they may have been holding back, even for protective reasons? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I really enjoyed finding those um, pieces in the story. And that was one of those magical things that happens when you write, where you just start listening to what the characters are saying. And one of the scenes that came out of that was having Emily speak to her mother about her early childhood, also Emily's mother's marriage, and how young she was when she had Emily. So these little memories that Emily has of standing on the other side of the door, a closed door, knowing her mother is on the other side and feeling a need, she's suddenly able to piece those together, what was happening on the other side of that door. What was her mother struggling with at the time? And I really enjoyed finding that out for myself because that it's one of those magical things that happens when you listen to your characters. Nicola, thank you very much for coming in. Thank you. Nicola Davison of Dartmouth is the author of In the Wake, published by Vagrant Press. It earned the 2019 Margaret and John Savage First Book Award in the fiction category. To hear past episodes of our podcast, go to bookmepodcast.ca. That's bookmepodcast.ca, or just pop bookme with an exclamation mark in your search engine. Bookme is sponsored by Nimbus Publishing and Arts Nova Scotia. Our producer is Robin Grant, and Lynn Fox captures and edits the sound waves, leaving perfect podcasts in her wake. I'm Costas Halavrezos. Now, let's go read. Read.